What's your mental picture of heaven? Some people think of it as one big endless worship service attended by saints who have been transformed into angelic beings sitting on clouds playing harps ad infinitum. Is that how the Bible presents the promise of heaven? Will heaven be such a radically different reality than the one that we know now that even space and time won't have any meaning there, as some theologians postulate? Will it be some kind of purely spiritual dimension that has none of the tangible things that we see here? Will it be so different from what we experience here and now that we can't even imagine what it will be like? You know, that's probably the most common response if you ask people what heaven will be like. Is I can't imagine it. Is that what God intends? In his book simply titled Heaven, which is one of my top five books ever, Randy Alcorn tells of a Bible-believing, seminary-educated pastor who came to him once and confided Whenever I think about heaven, it makes me depressed. I'd rather just cease to exist when I die. And when Rennie asked him why he would say such a thing, he answered, I just can't stand the thought of that endless tedium. Floating around in the clouds with nothing to do but strum a harp, it is so terribly boring. Alcorn goes on to point out that in the multitude of books written by Christians about what the Bible teaches... There is amazingly little said about heaven. In Lewis Burkhoff's very, very well-known and widely used systematic theology, which consists of 737 pages, his entire treatment of the doctrine of heaven is on page 737. In his 900-page theology, Great Doctrines of the Bible, Martin Lloyd-Jones devotes less than two pages to the eternal state and the new earth. Now, let me be quick to point out that those two men are faith, were faithful, diligent students and teachers of the Bible who impacted the lives of countless Christians, including me. But the reality is, you can easily find a lot more content in the Christian literature about seven years of the future called the tribulation than you can about all the rest of eternity. Is that absence of commentary about what the Bible has to say about heaven an accurate reflection of what the Bible has to say about heaven? Absolutely not. The passage from Zechariah 2 that we just read is one of Hundreds of passages in the Old and New Testaments that tell us what it will be like in that place in which we will spend eternity together with the saints in the presence of God. The place that God has prepared so that he may dwell in our midst. What I'm going to try to do this morning is to present a big picture kind of cruising altitude view of how we should approach the study of things to come as they are presented in, in the Bible. And I'll talk a whole lot less about specific future events than I will about the approach by which we examine those events in Scripture and understand them. 
The one future event I'm going to spend some time camping out on is the one that will last forever. Now, I want to start with a few common snares, perils, that we encounter in this ongoing debate about things to come. The first is being too clear about unclear things. If we attempt to get really, really detailed about charting out the timing and the specific nature of things to come, as we find them in Scripture, we're going to get a lot of stuff wrong. A lot of our detail will be speculative. And that's because whether we like it or not, eschatology, the doctrine of things yet future in God's plan of redemption, is a category of Bible doctrine in which God himself explicitly tells us that he's not going to tell us everything in advance. In the last chapter of the book of Daniel, after God had shown Daniel all kinds of astounding things about future wars and the rise and fall of future kings and kingdoms, after he had shown him how God was going to intervene to perform amazing judgments and amazing deliverances through those events, God said to Daniel, chapter 12, verse 4, As for you, Daniel, conceal the words, these words and seal up the book until the end of time. And then he says, many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Even that, those phrases are loaded. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Future, in the future. Okay. And then when God told Daniel to seal those words up, it wasn't because Daniel understood them and he was telling him to keep it quiet. Daniel in verse 8 says, As for me, I could not understand. So I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome of these things? And God said to him, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. And then in verse 13, he said again to Daniel, Go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. In Romans 11, after talking about how God will use the conversion of the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy, and through that jealousy will bring about the salvation of Israel, Paul says in Romans 11:33, Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. So if anyone tells you that his position on how the things future in the Bible will unfold has no weak points, you should feel free to pay no attention to his position. There are two questions I believe every Christian should be able to answer when it comes to the major positions on eschatology. The first and most important is, what passages of Scripture have you encountered that you find hardest to reconcile with your position? And the second is, what arguments from Scripture that you have found posed by those on the other side of the argument do you find the most compelling? If your answer to those two questions is none, and none don't expect to be taken seriously. If the Apostle Paul's own assessment of the things he had just presented about God's astounding game plan for finishing out his work of judgment and redemption brought Paul to conclude that God's judgments are unsearchable and his ways are unfathomable, 
then it's pretty safe to say that our understanding of those same truths will be less than bulletproof this side of glory. How about the timing? When will we know what these things mean with any real clarity? God's answer to us is the same as his answer to Daniel. Not now. Later. In Matthew 24, verses 32 to 36, Jesus said, Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, then you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. And then a few verses later, he says, But of that day and hour, no no one knows. Not the angels in heaven, not even the Son, but only the Father. When will you and I know at what time these things are going to come to pass? When they are already unfolding before our eyes. That should humble us as we study these things. The second common snare is theological snob appeal. And this one's very popular. I would say rampant. There are three three forms it takes that I've run across. One is historical snobbery. My position has been around so long, so much longer than yours, that mine has to be right and yours has to be wrong. The second is celebrity snobbery. Look at all the respected theologians who hold to my position. Where's your list? And finally, academic snobbery that's connected with the last one. Just try to find your position in any respected seminary. My answer to any and all of those snob appeal uh, statements is is another question. Anyone remember a little thing called the Reformation? If Martin Luther had caved in to any of those arguments, there would not have been a Reformation because nobody in the religious establishment was saying what he saw in the Scriptures that everybody needed to see. Another common snare, and this is a big one, is being right without being loving. God has uh, pounded away on me over the years on this one, and I hope, I hope to some avail. <laughs> There's a well-known quote that dates back to 17th century Germany. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. The things that we're talking about this morning are non-essentials. What that means is that our positions on these matters don't determine whether we are orthodox or not orthodox. So we need to be very mindful of the priority that we place on other people believing that we're right. 1 Corinthians 13.2, If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. I'm canceled out. Be loving first. It'll put your efforts to be right into a radically different context. And the last common snare I'll mention is what I call straw men with name tags. There is an all too common tendency for us to assume that we know the arguments that other that people holding other positions would present to us if we actually stood in front of them and had a discussion when in reality, we don't know them. 
And without that familiarity with our brother's position, we engage easily in straw man arguments. It's as if we construct a man who's made of hay, and we prop him up, and then we stick a label on him that says dispensationalists or amillennialists, and then we start taking punches at him. And we find that straw men are very easy to knock down. But the problem is that real and godly men who are diligent students of the Word are much more resilient when you start taking punches at them. It's far easier to dismiss a position if you can set up your own version of what that position declares and make sure that you're picking something that's very easy to shoot down and then shoot it down. Voila, you're done. If you think that that approach is not rampant in the Christian in Christian academia and in churches and in Christian literature, look again. It's part of the, it is part of the sin nature that unfortunately still has a big foothold in the church. We have to be very, very careful about making assumptions based on labels without doing our homework. When godly, careful students of the Bible differ on a, on a given matter, the biggest threat to unity is convenient ignorance of the other guy's position. I think probably one of the most valuable things that my dad said to me ever was listen to understand, not to respond. Listen to understand, not to respond. Sometimes I don't do that very well at all. If you do that, you might find that you have missed something in the text of Scripture that somebody on the other side of an argument has seen, and that's a good thing for you to know every time. Now that we're talking a little bit about different positions, I want to I want to point you to some some great resources that our brother Ron has available in the library. One of them is a this is a, a fold-out brochure, very well done by Timothy Paul Jones, Four Views of the End Times. This is you should certainly not consider this definitive or comprehensive, but what it does is it sets up the categories, defines the terms shows the timelines that are presented in each position, and it's a great launch pad for diving in further to the study of these things. I, I highly recommend that you get it. These are available for you to take and keep from the library. Uh, Ron and I have been commiserating a lot over the last couple of weeks as I've prepared for this message. This book, also by Timothy Paul Jones, takes that framework and then develops it much more comprehensively. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in this. I'm, I have not by any stretch finished it, but I, I've really enjoyed uh, diving into it. And there are lots and lots of other great resources in our library. If you haven't taken advantage of our library, you really you really ought to dig into it. It's the best church library I've seen that has that in any church anywhere near this size. And and we thank God for providing uh, our our faithful resource in, in Ron. Now, as we're, since we're talking about uh, different positions, I'm going to give you just a very quick nutshell view of my position. This is the least important part of this message. Basically, I hold to what is known as the dispensational premillennial timeline. But if you try to plug me too firmly into that label, you'll find that there's some points at which I, I don't fit. Um, I will say I, I do not go to the wall over the timing of the rapture. And there's one simple reason. It's that 
the arguments that I've seen from Scripture to support a specific timing, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, I simply don't find them entirely convincing. And until I do, I'm not going to camp out on any one of them. I've bounced around. My father-in-law, who's one of the one of the most diligent students of the word that I know, was mid-trib, and he got me to thinking about all this, and I still haven't settled it. <laughs> you know, that's fine. By the way, my hope is not in the rapture. We'll talk more about that. Some passages seem to support the belief that Jesus will deliver his church out of harm's way before the outpouring of God's wrath on an unbelieving world. And other passages seem fairly forcefully to indicate that the church, that we as Christians are going to experience part of the outpouring of that wrath. So I can't sort it all out. That's okay because what I was just saying at the beginning tells me I don't have to, right? Another point of departure for me from much of of today's mainstream dispensationalism is that I believe that the support Israel card has been badly overplayed. Now, that does not mean I don't believe we're supposed to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and that we should recognize that we as the Church of Jesus Christ have an unusual and special relationship with the, with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I believe all those things. I believe God is not finished with Israel. I believe Israel is the linchpin of God's unfolding plan of redemption. But I do not believe that gives Israel, who is in the land in unbelief, a carte blanche to do whatever they want to without criticism from the people of God. That sounds too much to me like what Muslims do when it comes to jihadists. Okay, now I'll probably get some fan mail over that one, but that's all right. I am not interested in being controversial at all. I don't care about meeting or not meeting anyone's expectations about what I should believe except God's. I don't care to be consistent with any label or any system of beliefs that other Christians have arrived at from their study of Scripture. I only care to be consistent with Scripture. And I fail at that often. I'm just as prone to get things wrong as anyone else is. So you should be as skeptical about what you hear from me as I am about what I hear from other people. See, a respectful skepticism drives us all constantly back to the only legitimate source. If it's in here, we need to know it. If it's not, we don't. Now, I've talked about differences in views. Let's talk about our common ground. I think this is, this is absolutely foundational. There are a lot of things when you start looking at, at, these, at this whole issue on which people from all four of the big positions and a whole lot of the subsets of those positions agree on, okay? on which they agree. Pardon the dangling preposition. I do that sometimes. All right. First, God's judgment of the nations before Christ returns. Now, there are a lot of differences about how that will happen, but most most theologians and students of the Bible from any position recognize that God is going to execute some judgments on this earth before Christ returns. Second, and this is huge, the imminent return of Christ to claim his own and to reign over his creation. Is there anybody who disagrees with that one? No, I don't, th- I don't think so. Not anyone who knows Jesus Christ. 
He's coming back. We're all looking for His return. And when He returns, we are all looking for Him to reign and for every knee to bow and every tongue to confess, both in heaven and on earth and under the earth, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We're together on that. And that's huge. The resurrection of the living and the dead. The dead first and then those who are still quick, still alive. They're going to get a lot quicker at that point. The bodily resurrection of the saints that is patterned after the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't know anybody in any of these categories that doesn't buy into that and isn't looking forward to it. The judgment of the saints unto rewards. There are some differences about exactly how that's going to work out and when it's going to happen. But again, pretty universally recognized as biblical. The consigning of Satan to the lake of fire. Everybody says amen to this one. Satan's going to lose, and he's going to lose big time, and he's going to lose permanently. The judgment of the lost unto eternal condemnation. They get sent to the same lake of fire forever. And finally, God dwelling in the midst of his redeemed people forever. The new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, all things made new in Jesus Christ. I don't know anybody who doesn't, any any Christian who is not looking for that. Beloved, that's our hope. We are called to diligently preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And considering how much we have in common, that shouldn't be so hard to do. So let's do that. I want to talk about a couple of challenges to pinning down things to come as they're presented in Scripture. These are not sinful tendencies that we have. These are just things that are true about God's revelation that present a challenge to us. The first is the prophet's view through the telescope. It's what I call it. Uh, In one of my favorite uh, commentaries, Absolute, uh, on the the Minor Prophets, by Bob Chisholm, he was my prophet, DTS, he talks about, in the introduction, he talks about what's called prophetic telescoping. And a lot of, a lot of commentators use that term. What, what they mean is that when God gave visions of future events to his prophets, to a man like Zechariah, God didn't distinguish between near-term and long-term fulfillments. It was as if the prophets were looking through uh, down a long timeline, a very long timeline, through a telescope. And there were a whole bunch of events on that timeline before they got to the ones at the very end that they're trying to see. And some of the near-term ones foreshadow the ones at the end. Some of them actually got fulfilled during the lifetime of the prophet, like the rebuilding of the temple in, you know, five years after Zechariah made this prophecy. But for the most part, they didn't get to see in their lives, a lot of the stuff. And so they didn't know how to differentiate between one event and another in that view. They just wrote it all down. And what's important for us to recognize is that that was not accidental. (laughs) It's not like it just slipped God's mind to give the prophets a precise timeline broken down into discrete events with date stamps. You think God couldn't have pulled that off if he'd wanted to? The lack of clarity regarding the timing of future events and the distinction between future events and much of the detail about those events, the lack of clarity is entirely by God's 
design. We'll know the rest of the story when we see it unfold, and not before, at least not much before. The fact that God presented future events in this manner should help keep us from getting too attached to our personal understanding of the timeline or of the details. Another challenge I'll call uh, distinguishing Al Gore from allegory. And I'm not trying to be political at all. His name just really fit the wordplay perfectly. Let's say you're at a, at a convention on climate change. I know you guys go to a lot of those. And at the end of the first day, the MC says, you need to all be sure that you're here for tomorrow's morning session. Former Vice President Al Gore will be our keynote speaker at 8 o'clock, and that's 42 minutes after what should be a glorious sunrise. So you might want to get up a little early and make sure you take that in as well. Now, we know that the sun doesn't actually rise. That's phenomenological language. It's a figure of speech that describes something in terms of how it looks to us, not how it actually is, right? We all understand it's not literal, so we don't treat it as literal. But both context and common sense tell us that all of the following in that statement by the MC are to be taken as literal. Former Vice President Al Gore, keynote speaker, 8 o'clock tomorrow morning and 42 minutes after we see the sun on the horizon. See, there is nothing unusual at all about mixing figurative language with literal language even in the same sentence. We do it all the time and the biblical writers do it all the time. I can't tell you how many times I have read in an argument by a dispensationalist or an amillennialist or a historical premillennialist, that one's always hard to say, where they're saying, look, this in this passage is, is literal, so everything else in the, in the passage has to be literal. Or this is figurative, it's metaphorical, so everything else in the passage has to be metaphorical. See, we haven't learned how to distinguish allegory from allegory. How do we know which is which? There are many passages in the Bible that distinguish between literal and allegorical things that are far from, from being a no-brainer when it comes to sorting those out. But there are a couple of simple hermeneutical principles that I believe we need to apply in this endeavor, and they go a long way to helping us make these, those distinctions. The first, and I don't have separate slides on these, but the first, and this one is not up for grabs, guys. This is a primary rule of hermeneutics, and it's context, context, context. Look around in the passage, look around in the paragraph, look around in the passage, look around in the book, and then bring to bear things that you know from other books in the Bible. The broader your context, the more data points you have for knowing what this passage means. And that means that we should all be studying the whole context of Scripture diligently. Secondly, when a given passage talks about known people, places, and events that show up often in Scripture as actual people, places, and events, assume that they are to be taken literally unless there's something in the context that compellingly argues for a figurative understanding. And sometimes that, that compelling argument is there in the text. Let me show you an example. Ezekiel 37, you can turn to it if you want. It's after the valley of the uh, dead bones, dry bones. God tells the prophet Ezekiel to take two sticks. One, on one of them, 
he writes the name of the the northern tribes, Joseph and his associates. So he's talking about the northern tribes, Israel. And on the other, Judah, the southern tribes. These are the two divisions of the tribes of Israel that, that were, were separated from each other after the reign of Solomon. And he says, take those two sticks and put them in your hand so that they are one stick. And that'll be a picture of my intention to, to bring, to gather the house of Israel and the house of Judah and to join them back together into one nation. Okay. Now, God doesn't tend to do things in the Bible the way they were done in the movie Inception, a dream within a dream within a dream. In the Bible, when a metaphor is presented, there's usually one level of that metaphor, and the next level is the reality to which it points. Okay? So in Ezekiel 37, I take the two sticks to be a metaphor. Pretty straightforward. Israel's not really a stick, and Judah's not really a stick. Okay? And so, at the next level, I take that which those two sticks represent to be literal, and that is Israel and Judah. Especially since those two sets of tribes, those two houses of the sons of Jacob, are presented hundreds of times in the Bible as literal. Just a few verses later, though, in the same passage, God tells Ezekiel, and my servant David will be king over them. But there's a problem with that. David's been dead for 300 years. My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them, and they will live on the land. Which land? The land I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it. They and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. David had been dead for 300 years. But the promise of the descendant of David, who would reign on the throne of David over all the nations of the earth as a perfectly just and righteous king, that promise was very well established by the time God gave these statements to Ezekiel. David was clearly a foreshadowing, a type, looking toward Messiah. And pretty much all biblical theologians agree on that typology, right? So for all those reasons, I take the David spoken of this passage to be Jesus, not a literal reincarnated King David. But then when the passage goes on to say, as I just read, that the reunited tribes of Israel and Judah will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, I take that reference to the promised land and to the reunited people of Israel and Judah to be quite literal because I find nothing in the immediate context or in the distant context of Scripture that would argue otherwise. I believe that throughout Scripture when God talks about Israel and when he talks about the land that he gave to Israel to which he will return to dwell in the midst of his people, he means what he says. Do you know how many times the word land or earth is used in the Old Testament? 2,190 times. Randy Alcorn points out that it is the fourth most frequently used noun in the Old Testament. The promise of a place that God has chosen in which he will dwell in the midst of his people is included in all four of the major covenants in the Old Testament, and it is the first promise in the first of those covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the land. What is that place 
that's being promised. Where, where is that land? Well, God says over and over and over and over, it is the land in which your fathers lived. And the capital of that place, the city in which God will dwell in the midst of his people, God says, is Jerusalem. There are many passages in which God's promises to come and dwell in the midst of his people in the place he, get, he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the place that place is referred to in those passages as Jerusalem. Now, I was gonna, to drive home this point, I was going to flip through about 20 slides showing dozens of passages that talk about that very thing, but I don't have time, so I won't do that. Now, forgive me, please, guys, forgive me if I sound too passionate about something right after I said that we can't be absolutely sure about this stuff. I'm just wired passionately, I'm sorry. Don't take it as condescension. I highly, greatly respect brothers and sisters in Christ who differ with me on this stuff. But I'm giving you my understanding. Now, the last thing, and this is is the last big category that I want to talk about, is dueling with dualism. Why are there library shelves filled with books about the events leading up to the eternal state, heaven, but so few about heaven itself? I think a big part of that answer is that we are dualistic. We have a terribly mistaken concept that meaning and purpose and godliness and joy and peace and righteousness all fall into a realm that we call spiritual. And that the realm that we call physical has little or nothing to do with those things. But beloved, that is Platonism, not Christianity. The Bible knows nothing of that way of seeing things. Nothing at all. God created man as physical and spiritual beings in a physical and holy place. And he gave them dominion over that place as his representatives. And that's the way God intended men to be. And by the way, that's what he's going to restore. Ephesians 1, there's an amazing verse it says, verse 10, Ephesians 1.10, King James, I think, does the best job of rendering it. It says, In the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he, God, will gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In Colossians 1.19 and 20, it says, It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, in Christ, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. See, God's plan of redemption involves reconciling earth with heaven. The perfecting of all things that will occur at the culmination of the ages is not a transformation of the imperfect physical into the perfect spiritual. It is the redeeming of the imperfect physical so that it is made perfect and now it is reconciled with the perfect spiritual. Are you with me? Does that make sense? See, it's the overturning and the undoing of the curse. It is God reclaiming the physical that has been cursed and bringing it into perfect conformity with the spiritual so that the two are made one, the things in heaven and the things on earth just like it was in the garden. The greatest demonstration that we have of this reconciliation of the spiritual with the physical, some of you will guess it, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Luke twenty-four thirty-nine, the resurrected Christ 
said to his disciples, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then he sat down and ate a meal with them. That body is the body that Jesus Christ will dwell in forever. Just as his mortal physical body was raised an immortal physical body, so ours will be. And that same resurrection principle will apply to all of God's creation. The biblical precursor, the the template, if you will, for what heaven will be like was already presented to us in Genesis 1 and 2. It's the Garden of Eden. I agree with, there's a great statement that Timothy Paul Jones makes. He says, you have to start at the beginning of things to rightly understand what God is telling us about the end of things. I believe that much of our confusion about the heaven that Jesus has prepared for us and many of the differences between our views on eschatology, things to come, arise from a dualism that persists in our understanding of the physical and the spiritual realms. Most of the time, when I run into a dogmatic assertion that some facet of the millennium or of the eternal state has to be either physical or spiritual, my first question is, why shouldn't it be both? When God's clearly declared purpose is to reconcile the two realms into one. To move from an age in which the presence of God dwells in the hearts of his people, which is now in the church, to an age in which the presence of God dwells in the hearts of his people and physically in the company of his people is not a step backward. It is a step forward because it is God reclaiming reclaiming that which was cursed so that he himself can come to dwell in the midst of his people. That's the promise in both Testaments. I believe... And this is my position, take it or leave it. I believe there will be a rebuilt physical temple, an actual building in the city of Jerusalem during the millennium. But that's not my hope. That's not my hope. If the millennium is as I understand it, there will still be sin there. Even while Satan is locked up for a thousand years, right? There'll still be sin there. See, I I believe the millennium, one of the main purposes of, of the millennium is it's the final proof that unless God does everything, the redemption of that which was cursed will never happen. The flood didn't do it. The confusion of languages didn't do it. The calling out of a people for his own possession didn't do it. The the giving of his law didn't do it. The, The presence of Christ himself on this earth living a sinless life Showing the Father to the people didn't do it. And even the reign of Christ as the perfectly just and righteous king on earth over mankind with Satan locked up for a thousand years, that won't do it either because the second Satan is released, guess what the people do? Read it. Yeah. That's why the millennium is not my hope. My eager, and and whether... Whether the millennium is literal, whether it's here, whether it's there, you know, bottom line, it's not my hope. So I'm not going to get all that excited about it, and I'm not going to, for the Lord's sake, I'm not going to divide with another brother over it, right?
Now, my eager expectation, my hope, is for that day when the end of things reclaims the beginning of things in full. Revelation 21 explicitly presents the temple in the New Jerusalem as not being a building, right? It says there's no need for a temple because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And by the way, I believe that's the Father and the Son physically dwelling in the midst of His people. You know why the Father isn't here? Even while Jesus has been here? Because in the fullness of His glory, He can't be here until He reconciles that which is cursed with that which is holy, until He does away with the curse. Then He can dwell in our midst. Now, John 14, the Upper Room Discourse, hours before he was betrayed into the hands of his executors, Jesus told his disciples he was going to prepare a place for them. This is, I love this. <laughs> and then he said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Why? So that where I am you may be also. In Revelation 21, we see that marvelous place that Jesus has been preparing. And it comes down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And the word made ready is the exact same Greek word that Jesus used in John 14 when he says prepare. It's the place prepared by Jesus and he's bringing it out of heaven to earth because that's what he did when he came. He was sent from heaven to earth, from the, from the presence of God down to us so that God could redeem a people for his own possession, zealous for righteousness. See, is that is that place that's coming down out of heaven, is it a spiritual place or is it a physical place? It's both. It has to be. Otherwise, there is no reclaiming of that which was cursed. Why does all this matter? It matters because God is telling us what it will be like. When heaven comes down to earth, the heaven that will be our eternal home and his eternal dwelling. Now, I'm not saying that any place on earth can contain God. Solomon said in 1 Kings 8, neither heaven nor the highest heaven can contain God. But does that mean God can't be someplace physically? Of course it doesn't. The new Jerusalem will be new, but it will not be unrecognizable. Just as we, when we have been redeemed, are made new. We are not made unrecognizable. The New Jerusalem will have as much connection and continuity with the literal physical Jerusalem that we now know as our redeemed souls and resurrection bodies will have with their unredeemed precursors. At the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah were Moses and Elijah made new. And the New Jerusalem will be the Jerusalem we know made new. And by the way, it will be a whole lot bigger. And it'll be three-dimensional, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles high. Now, some will say, but the heavens and the earth are going to burn away with intense heat so that the elements melt. Yes, absolutely, Second Peter 3. But that destructive fire will be a refiner's furnace that destroys and vaporizes every residue of the curse and that restores that which is being redeemed so that it is refined and made perfect and pure. That refiner's furnace is also spoken of many times in the scriptures. In Romans 8, 
What is the believer's hope? What is the future event for which we, with perseverance, eagerly wait? It is our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And what else gets redeemed when we do? Everything. All of creation. In fact, all of creation is groaning and they're waiting not for the redemption of creation. They're waiting for our redemption because that's the prerequisite. That's what makes everything new. God created Adam and Eve as physical and spiritual beings and he put them into a wonderful, amazing place that he created for man to act as his agents. A place filled with beauty and abundance, filled with pure and unstained, untainted communion between the man and the woman and between them and God. Man was created to tend that marvelous place in which Almighty God walked with him in the cool of the evening and to tend to all of God's created order. And that is exactly the state of affairs that God has reclaimed in Jesus Christ. What made that place holy? The same thing that made that piece of dirt on top of Mount Sinai holy when Moses first met Yahweh in the form of the burning bush. God said to Moses, put off the shoes from upon your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. What made it holy? The presence of God. The point of the place is the presence of the person. Heaven is not some big, endless, monotonous worship service. Now, there will be worship, and it will be amazing. (laughs) Like nothing we've ever known. Glorious worship filled with songs and hymns and praises from saints whose voices are strong and on pitch and in perfect harmony. I can't wait for that. Because my voice is not my strong point. But just as it is now, we will experience worship. We will experience productive and creative work. We will experience ceasing from work. We will experience fellowship with one another. And we will experience personal communion with God. All without sin. All without any residue of the curse. So the next time somebody says, I can't imagine what heaven is like, feel free to say to them, why not? God talks about it all the time. When we plant a garden in that place, every seed will come to fruition. Every fruit and nut and vegetable will be fresh and tasty until it's eaten because it won't spoil. We won't need pesticides or preservatives or antifungals or growth hormones. There will be no weeds and no thorns, just like in the garden. Whatever you know of creativity and productivity and accomplishment here, you will know it there without the suppressing, constraining influence of sin and without the opposition of nature under the curse. Whatever you know as sweet fellowship with the saints here, you will know there, but with zero sin in you and zero sin in them. That is really cool. And what you know now of blessed communion with God, you will know there without limit. The clouded glass will be gone. We will see him as he truly is, and we will be like him. Whoever has this hope fixed on him purifies himself even as he is pure.
1 John 3, 3. Guys, heaven on the new earth in the new Jerusalem is going to be fabulous. A day is coming soon when God, as Zechariah says in Zechariah 2, 13, will be aroused from his holy habitation to finish out all things in Christ so that he can come and dwell in the midst of his redeemed people in his redeemed place. When that day comes, all flesh will stand in silent awe. All of creation will know the terrible, wonderful fear of the Lord that is the beginning of all wisdom, the beginning of all knowledge, and the essence of all life. I'll close with these words from Isaac Watts' marvelous hymn, Joy to the World. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known, far as the curse is found. Dear Father, we long for that day. Keep us fixed on that hope, Lord. Keep us, keep us united in a spirit of love, focused on the things that we share in common, because that glorious hope, that amazing promise, we all have in common that we will be in your presence forever, purged, cleansed, purified of sin with no residue of the curse, and we will finally know what it's like to be truly human. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name.